This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's Friday on Today in Ohio, and as we said yesterday, we'll be talking about a new gun study that is provocative and had lots of people talking on Thursday. It's the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin and Leila Tassi. Let's get to the gun story, Lisa. Anti-gun activists predicted that abolishing a permit requirement to carry concealed weapons would turn the state into the Wild West. What does a new study say about that prediction and what do people say about that study? Right. Yeah, this study is from Bowling Green University with a little help from the Ohio AG's office. So they took a look at the gun crime rate in 2021 before passage of the permitless carry law that happened in June 2022. And then they looked at the crime, gun crime rate after the passage of that law in Ohio's largest cities. They found that the rates actually dropped in all cities except Dayton and Cincinnati. Uh, Parma fell the most at 22%. Akron and Toledo right behind them at 18 percent down. Cleveland was actually, despite our crazy summer, uh, gun crime rate was down 5% in Cleveland. It was up 6% in Dayton and 5% in Cincinnati. Um, Yost said the study looked at the relationship between law and the gun crime rate, and he said it demonstrates that the law change is not the problem. He said he's not downplaying gun crime, but we must keep pressure on criminals who shoot people rather than those exercising their Second Amendment rights. But we did talk to a Stanford law professor, John Donahue III, and he said, it's really, honestly, it's too soon to assess the impact in Ohio. 2021 was an unusually bad year for gun crime, so that's perhaps not the best baseline for this study. And he said most of the rest of the country saw dramatic drops, and Ohio's smaller gun crime decrease indicates that the law was actually more harmful. And he says that there's strong evidence that the right to carry does increase violent crime and death rates from gun crimes. Yeah, I, I do want to point out that the researchers in this thing did put caveats at to the end of the study that said, look, this is one year. This could be based on the years we looked at and longer term trends might change the landscape. They need more data. I mean, they laid it all out. They just said, we looked at one year to the next. You could argue that 2021, you had very high gun crime because it was the second year of the pandemic and everybody was mm -hmm. going nuts. I mean, 2021 mm -hmm. was kind of the height of the mania of the pandemic. Life got back to normal more in 2022. Um, but but you know, so so yesterday, the people who are in favor of guns were all going, see, see, this, mm -hmm. this is proof. This is proof. And it, it all it's proof of is that it the numbers went from one year to the next. What we can say, though, is it didn't go wildly out of control 
which mm. was also one of the predictions. Now, over 10 years, what'll happen? Maybe it'll go up. Maybe, maybe we'll see that it does have a damaging effect. But in the first year of it, we didn't see that. And that, that is important to note. Yeah, and I think we need more data. And they've also pointed out that 19 of the 23 states that do have permitless carry laws have passed them all within the last decade. So there's not a whole lot of data points nationally either. The Buckeye Firearms Association on a website statement says, well, this may surprise gun control advocates, but not us. Permitless carry didn't change anything for criminals. It just made it easier for law-abiding citizens to carry. And and I think we need to realize, too, that, you know, I think when people think of gun crimes, they think of, you know, carjackings, robberies and that things. But there are a whole lot of gun crimes in the domestic violence arena. And are those people criminals before they shoot their spouse? You know, come on. The, well, they, the other thing is they did in the two cities that have had shot spotter long enough to measure it. Cleveland just got it last year, so they couldn't do it. Uh, they did see fewer gunshots in those cities year over year. Again, it's just year over year. So if 2022 was an outlier, then of course it's going to go down. You cannot read too much into this. It's one data point in what eventually will be thousands of data points. But it got a lot of people talking, which is it was good, including us. You're listening to Today in Ohio. A big change comes to the social media landscape in Ohio starting a week from Monday when most children will be off from school, it just happens, for Martin Luther King Jr. Day, so they'll be on their screens. Layla, what's the change, and is there a realistic chance of enforcing it? Well, under a new state law that, uh, like a lot of things, was shoehorned into the state budget bill this past summer, TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat, other social media platforms will have to get parents' permission to set up accounts for kids under the age of 16 beginning January 15th. The Ohio law also requires the platforms to offer parents a list of censoring or content moderation features. This provision didn't take effect until now to give the social media companies a chance to come up with the framework to do these to meet these requirements, and they won't apply to any accounts that were created before January 15th. But under this law, parents would have to sign a form consenting to the child's use and send it by mail. Uh, companies must also provide a, a toll-free telephone number or video teleconference line for adults to give permission. Companies then have to verify a parent's identity by checking a government-issued ID, and they'd have to send parents who have given consent a written confirmation of the account. And when they mm -hmm. deny consent, the companies must deny the child's access to the platform the companies have to send the adults a notification of each separate financial transaction when a platform requires money, and the company has to terminate the, the kid's account within 30 days if a parent requests that they do that. If they don't do it, the parents can file a complaint with the state. What's to stop a kid from just pretending they're not a kid? I know, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, I, if if I if I went on, if I hadn't been on one of these platforms and I went on, and they asked me for my birth date, and you put in your, I mean, I just I don't understand how you can enforce this with any kind of kid that is is looking to do it. It all falls back to the parent. And you know, Layla, we've talked. You you're a hawk about social media and kids because we all know how damaging it can, can be to young kids. That's the purpose of this law. I just don't know how enforceable it is for an enterprising kid. Yeah, right. I think that that is the key question. How easy would it be for them to just create a profile that lies about their age? Because if an adult 
So the the only safeguard that if every adult had to prove that they're over 18, then then that is a true that tr- that is a true uh, stopgap there. Nothing would stop kids currently from creating a fake profile claiming to be 18. And I don't know how they would possibly police that. Yeah. And I don't think if they had a requirement that adults do it, that adults would be very comfortable providing driver's license and things to these social media platforms that get hacked every hour. So I I, I just don't. They're going to have to do I, I that under this motive. new law to give their kids permission, though. Yeah, I just I, I. I'm thrown by how enforceable this is. It's it exists in other states, and our story really didn't say how that's worked out in other states. We're not the first. And again, it the, the motive behind this is pure. There's a whole lot of damage yeah. that happens to kids on social media. I if my kids were young today, I I I would really not want them on social media. It's haunting the stuff that happens there. But I just it, this is a tough one to enforce, right. and there's some serious criminal penalties, right, or, or serious financial penalties if the social media companies don't comply. Yeah, that's true. You know, a spokeswoman for the company that runs Facebook and Instagram didn't comment for this about this policy, but in other stories written about this topic, the companies have pointed out that a better way to regulate the use of social media by minors is is at the point where the app is downloaded. And it's much easier, apparently, and more uniform for Apple, for example, to enforce parental controls at that point than to have this kind of patchwork of different apps that are trying to regulate it individually. I mean, overall, I, I do understand the the motivation you're right is, is good. Part of the inspiration for this law were the cases of what's known as sextortion when an adult perpetrator online coerces an an adolescent victim to send them a nude picture and then extorts them for money. Apparently, the FBI has investigated thousands of those cases, and and in a dozen of them, the victims ended up dying by suicide. That's Something has to be done about that. I mean, my kids are 12 and 9 and 3, and none of them have phones, and none has a social media account. And I do believe that the longer we prolong their access to those technologies and those platforms, the higher their quality of life will be, the better their relationships with friends, the better their self-esteem and their mental health. I mean, I, for but, heaven's sake, but, I don't even like the way social media makes me feel as <laughs> a fully grown uh-huh. adult. I can't imagine what it does to a kid whose brain and se- sense of self are still only just developing. So I don't mind it? being asked permission before my kids access these things. But but yeah, you're going, you're not going to be able to uh, to to be the gatekeeper very effectively when ki- kids find a way around everything. Except yours haven't, right? So no, the key does seem, really good and kids. you use your example, <laughs> as the parent is the person that's supposed to keep track of what their kid yeah, is doing. In our family, we talk a lot about, about the issue of social media. They actually are very perceptive about their peers who are glued to their phones and seem to be missing the world around them. And then we talk about it. So, you know, it's not so much that the the rule has come down heavy on them. It's that they they recognize the the value of prolonging access to those things and just enjoying kind of an analog childhood. So we'll have to monitor this over the next year to see how it plays out. I, I just see a lot of challenges here, but maybe it's worked elsewhere well enough. We should look at it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The hot story of the week was supposed to be the release 
of the list of associates of the late Jeffrey Epstein. When it came out, it crashed the servers of the places that had it. He's the disgraced financier who used his fortune to pay underage girls for sex. Lisa, was there anything new in what we got about Ohio? Not a whole lot, but Ohio billionaire Les Wexner's name did come up in documents that were released Wednesday as part of a defamation lawsuit against Jeffrey Epstein's girlfriend, Jelaine Maxwell, who's currently in prison. Um, the lawsuit was filed by victims, including Virginia Roberts Jufri, and um, they said that Wexner is not on that famous list of the wealthy that Epstein per- procured underage girls for. But Epstein and Wexner were pretty closely tied. I mean, he Epstein was the former money manager for Wexner's L Brands, which includes Victoria's Secret, Pink, and Bath and Body Works. And a deposition witness said she was asked if she provided Jufre with a sexual outfit to wear for Wexner. The answer to that question was no. They also asked if she talked to, you know, Wexner about the defamation case. The also the answer was no. Wexner's name also came up in a Florida police investigation into um, Jeffrey Epstein. Wexner apparently arrived on a private plane in Florida with county executives for a meeting with Epstein. But Wexner denies knowledge of all these, you know, sexual things going on. He severed ties with Epstein when the allegations surfaced. And he said that Epstein actually misappropriated vast sums of money from him during their relationship. But attorneys for the victims stress that there's no reason to disbelieve Wexner's claim. He was not seen in company with Epstein when these abuses occurred, and the victims seldom met or even saw Wexner. What was interesting about this is when word came out they were going to release all these records, we all thought there'd be huge revelations in there. And it, again, it crashed the three servers that it was that where it was hosted. But in the end, it was kind of everything we already had heard already. I mean, Correct. all of these names had emerged, Bill Clinton and all these folks had been out there. And so it was kind of like Al Capone's vault, you know, lots of buildup, but very little payoff at the end. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We wondered earlier this week whether Cleveland would fight a law prohibiting Ohio municipalities from using participatory budgeting as it appears to violate home rule. Cleveland leaders fought a participatory budgeting initiative on the ballot, but they also care about home rule. Layla, what's the answer? The the answer is that the city of Cleveland will not challenge the state's ban on participatory budgeting because the city lacks the legal standing to do that. Cleveland doesn't currently have a participatory, participatory budgeting program to even defend against this state law. There's no actual case or controversy, which is what they need to challenge the law. Also, Many argue that this law is written in such a way that it doesn't apply to charter cities that enjoy home rule authority. I'm sure the state would contest that if if they had the chance. But if that is indeed the case, that's another reason why the city of Cleveland wouldn't have standing to challenge the state law. So by way of background, you know, as you said, Chris, city officials, including Mayor Justin Bibb, were not thrilled about the People's Budget Initiative that came to the ballot this past November. That was the proposed change to the city charter that would have permanently carved out 2% of the city's budget for residents to spend on projects of their choosing. 
And Bib personally likes the concept of participatory budgeting and all the benefits that come from that process. And he probably would have supported it on a much, much smaller scale and as probably a pilot project, not baked permanently into the city charter where there's no flexibility on how it's used. So that said, if there's one thing Bib disliked more than this participatory budgeting proposal, it was the state telling Cleveland they couldn't do it. <laughs> so when State Senator Jerry Serino tried to propose a standalone bill banning participatory budgeting in all Ohio cities, Bibb dispatched folks to Columbus to testify against it for the sake of preserving home rule authority. And, and Serino's proposal eventually made its way into another unrelated bill. But that final version was different from Serino's original proposal in a pretty important way. Serino's initial bill included language that explicitly said the ban would apply to charter cities like Cleveland. This version that passed did not. So that forms the basis for that argument that Cleveland as a charter city might be exempt from this new law and therefore couldn't mount a challenge to it. I mean, all of that said, it's very possible that Cleveland could one day attempt such a program just to see how it goes. And the state would most likely claim that it's illegal. And then you're going to see the city decide, you know, whether or not to go to the mats over it. Well, except, and I, maybe I misunderstand this. It, my understanding is if the city's elected officials want to create the program, they can. That this law prohibits citizen initiatives to create it. Yeah, I guess right? that's true. That's true. Right. Well, 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 wait, yeah. let's think that out. I'm pretty sure that's the way it works. So I think so it would have to be that, <clears throat> yeah, if you if you if the city budgets the money to be spent on on this experiment, then then that is you know a lawful it's use. Okay. Right. Right. Okay. Right. You're right. So the city doesn't have standing because the city can do it, and it's a charter city anyway, so they're they're banned. Where the people who would have standing are the people who put that initiative on the ballot. I don't get the argument that because it doesn't exist, you don't have standing. The state law has prohibited citizens from creating these initiatives. So I would think they would have the standing to sue and say, this is a home rule issue. They just don't have the resources to do it. It's a, well, it's also filled it'd be with a tough argument to make since they voted it down here. Right. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. How can you argue it, that you've been disenfranchised when you, 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 you turned down the opportunity to have such a program. Well, they overreached because they made it huge and they had all sorts of really onerous rules in it. If they came up with a more reasonable proposal, like the fact is, if they came up with a reasonable proposal and they went to the city, maybe they could get it through. That's the way to do it instead of going to the citizens. Interesting. It, it, so this law does probably illegally harm home rule, but no one cares. So it's not going to be challenged. It'll be on the books for the next century. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The removal of a Cuyahoga County judge for inexcusable courtroom behavior ends up having some serious ramifications for Metro Health because of one weird anomaly in how board members are chosen for the hospital system. Lisa, how will those ramifications be resolved? It's unclear at this point because of how they're interpreting state law. So Common Pleas Judge Dan Gall, who was suspended by the Ohio Supreme Court, he was one of, you know, 
the people who voted on appointing Metro Health's, you know, 10 member governing board. And now his position has to be filled because he's suspended. Gall and probate judge Anthony Russo get to vote on Metro Health governing board nominees along with county council members. This was a role bestowed upon the judges by state maker lawmakers long ago. Now it depends on how you interpret the law. It says that probate and common pleas judges are the most senior in point of service are the ones who get to vote. But that's understood to mean that that's the longest serving judge. So Administrative Judge Brendan Sheehan sought clarification. The Ohio Supreme Court said, well, it should go to the next most senior judge after Gall. That would be Kathleen Ann Satula, who was appointed in 1991 by Governor Voinovich. But if it's interpreted that the current CP judge with the most service in any court it would be Shirley Strickland Saffold, who began as a Cleveland Municipal Court judge in 1987 and that moved on to the Common Pleas bench in 1995. But both of these women have hit the age limit and they can't run again for re-election. So then that means it would probably go to Judge Timothy McCormick if he wins re-election in November. So, hmm. I, I never did understand, though, in all of this, why the legislature and all its wisdom put a couple of judges in the decision-making process. It's a county-funded hospital. The county, formerly county commissioners, now the county council and the county executive, oversee that budget. Why can't they just do it? Why do you have to involve these folks who have nothing to do with hospitals and healthcare systems? It's it's a good question. I mean, you know, they said that they were given this duty long ago. I'm not sure, really, really sure what the background was in doing that, but now we see the issue. <laughs> well, I mean, look, Metro Health has had a, a good deal of controversy recently, and it it has spent a lot of money on a big renovation. And, you know, I think the aim of putting board members in place is to get people with health care and finance expertise what do the judges know about that? It just, it, it throws me that this exists. We've seen something similar. Uh, they're, they're in Jaga County where a judge had the same kind of role in the choice of their parks board. All hell erupted because the judge there is kind of way out over his skis. And again, you think, why does a judge have say over the parks board? It just, it's a, it's a very odd animal and nobody's really been able to explain the purpose of it. Sounds like something we should dig into this year. Yeah, yeah, we should. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The transgender candidate we discussed yesterday after their name was kicked off the ballot has appealed the decision. Layla, it's a new wrinkle in this case. What's the argument? So the Stark County Board of Elections earlier this week unanimously voted to disqualify candidate Vanessa Joy from running for an Ohio House seat in Stark County because she failed to put her dead name on her candidate petitions. For trans people, their dead name is the name that they went, went by before they transitioned. And Joy is now contesting the Board of Elections decision, arguing that the requirement to list all prior names for the past five years is a discriminatory practice against LGBTQ candidates. In her appeal, Joy said that she recognizes and agrees with the spirit of the law. However, she wrote she didn't know about the law until she was disqualified. 
adding that the requirement isn't mentioned in the 33-page candidate guide that the Ohio Secretary of State's office issues, and that many Stark County Board of Elections staffers seem to be unaware of the rule themselves. And she says that while she understands that the intention of the law was not to discriminate against trans candidates, that's the net effect here. Well, I, 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 there are two, two new wrinkles for, for me here. One, she's arguing that it has been enforced intermittently, although she didn't provide she the did evidence not, of no. that. that. That would be a big thing. If, they, if all of a sudden they've ignored it for years, but now they just use it on a transgender candidate, that's a major red flag. But the second thing is, is it on the form or not? I mean, if, if there's nothing on the application form that says what names have you used in the last five years, so, so she clearly didn't know that this existed and it's not in the handbook. How can you enforce that? I, I just, I, I'm thrown because for her, for her to say I didn't know about it, I presume there was a question on the form. I thought Please so list too. all the names you've used over the last five years. Take a look she's at the saying, form. I don't know. I mean, she's saying that it's not in the candidate guide, but my presumption was that it, it is on the form. I mean, doesn't it say, you know list your prior names for the past five years it should this sounds like we have another follow-up story <laughs> we'll need to do because <laughs> because that's instructive if it's not on the forum and it's not in the handbook i don't know how you can argue you can enforce that um but but if it's on the form then her argument she didn't know about it loses all sorts of credibility yeah but but what what do you make though of the the argument that it's uh it's particularly disenfranchising to the lgbtq community and candidates. No. I, I think it's going to be a hard argument to make in yes. our courts. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 the only way we talked about this yesterday, the only way you could do it is to say there's exemptions for married people. Yeah. So, you know, why is it not exempt for this? But I don't think you're going to be pulled off. The rule's the rule. You've got to list your past names over the last five years, right? So, Go ahead, Lisa. Well, and I was just, anybody who runs for public office, that's going to come up anyway. You know, you can't say, oh, my life started in 2021 after, you know, after my transition and not expect people to say, well, what did you do before then? I mean, it's going to come up. If you're running for public office, they're going to dig into your background. It's going to come up. I just think that the fact that any candidate who changes their name on account of marriage doesn't have to list their prior name is very discriminatory. That suggests that marriage is a more legitimate reason to change one's name than gender transition. And that argument is discriminatory and completely false. Yeah, I, I look. I my feeling is there shouldn't be any exemptions. It ought to be straight. If you, if you list your last five years of names, but but if they're going to exempt the married heterosexual people, you're getting into some serious trouble by by trying to parse this. But I'm also now concerned that <laughs> candidates don't know about the requirement, and then you really start to think what what is going on here. So. We'll have to dig dig a bit deeper. It's an it's a very interesting uh, case. You're listening to today in Ohio. One of Cleveland's educational giants died this week. What was Michael Schwartz known for, Lisa? 
Wow, he was quite the higher education giant, and Ohio is probably blessed to have him. But Michael Schwartz died at 86 uh, on Tuesday. He spent 25 years at Kent State. He began back in 1976 as the vice president for graduate studies and research, then moved up the chain to vice president of academic and student affairs, and then finally was appointed as Kent State's ninth president from 1982 to 91. A lot of things happened while he was there. He oversaw creation of the May 4th. Memorial uh, that was dedicated in 1990. And then he remained after he retired to teach higher education administrative grad courses for 10 years after he retired. And then they named the administration building for him for that. And then he moved on. He wasn't done. He moved on to Cleveland State. He was the interim president for a year and became Cleveland State's fifth president from 2002 to 2009. A lot happened under his watch at Cleveland State. He created new admission standards. He began an honors program. Uh, he had new campus buildings built, including dorms. He renovated, you know, campus amenities. And for his efforts, they named the school library after him. And his son, Ken, said, you know, my dad fell in love with Kent and Cleveland State. He loved the faculty, students, and communities, and he really took their success to heart. What a great guy. You can't say enough about his transforming of that campus. When I first came to town in 96, Cleveland State was nothing. It wasn't a campus in any way that you would think of it as a campus. He came in, realized the school didn't really have an identity. It you know, felt like it had no soul. And he completely changed that in a fairly short period of time reoriented it to today where you go through there and it does very much feel like a thriving college campus. That all happened under his watch. His successors continued that and continued to build on it, but it took him to make the change. So so it's a he was a remarkable Clevelander, um, deserved a, uh, a full reckoning in his obit. And, and I, I think this is a great quote. He said that, you know, when I first came to CSU, I, if I ever saw anyone wearing a Cleveland State t-shirt or sweatshirt, it was an amazing sight. They just didn't do it back then. They wore any other college, but they didn't wear Cleveland State. And he said, now that's totally different. Yeah. yeah and he that really did happen under his watch. I was here. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for the Friday episode. It's it for the first week of the year. Thanks for being on this journey with us. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Le Lisa. We will be back on Monday. <laughs>